0: You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid Missouri's source for in depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid Missouri's only in depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. Thank you for joining me. We are going to dive straight into today's show. This week, I only have one guest, and he is world famous. We ended up chatting for two hours and would probably be there still, but as one hour is all we have, I had to do some judicious editing. So I hope you'll stay with me for the next hour. I am so honoured and delighted to have the opportunity to chat to my guest this morning, Maestro Marlon Daniel, a multi-award-winning conductor who has studied with some of the biggest names in the classical world, including the Finnish conducting pedagogue Jorma Panula, and who has performed at prestigious venues across Europe and the United States, including Carnegie Hall. He won the Voice of the Artist Award from the United Nations in recognition of his charitable work, bringing awareness to the crisis in Darfur, and has a honorary key to the city of Chicago, his hometown, for outstanding musical achievement. He is the artistic and music director of the International Festival of the Music of Saint-Georges, and more on that during our chat, and is a champion of works by living composers, especially those of African descent. He has been described as having a natural and enormous talent and as fabulous and exceptional. And for the next hour, he is our guest on Speaking of the Arts. Welcome Maestro Marlon Daniel.
1: Hello, hi, how are you today?
0: No, I am so happy to be chatting to you. Thank you so much for making time to chat, Maestro. There are several areas I'd like to cover in our time together today, obviously your career, how we can work to bring diversity to the classical musical world and the challenges faced by musicians, composers and conductors of colour, and the incredible work of Joseph Bologne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, of whose music you are one of, if not the leading world experts. But let's start off with you. I am always curious in a world dominated by pop and rock music, how children find themselves drawn to the classical world and how they stay with it. Tell me where it started for you.
1: Well, it started with me when I was very young. My biological father is actually a musician and I would be able to see him on the weekends weekend kind of dad and but uh, basically when I used to see him he used to always be practicing and uh mostly he's a percussionist but he had at the time when I was young he was finishing up a degree at the American Conservatory of Music so he had a piano requirement so he's really very low-level pianist but I used to always watch him because it was supposed to be some kind of quality time and uh, he used that for practicing that shows you well yeah um the level of his interest at that time he needed to get this degree done but I used to watch but I I was confused because he would keep repeating things over and over again and after watching him for some weeks I actually said you know went to the piano and started to play his pieces I had been watching I said I figured this out I said I fixed it and now can we go and have pizza <laughs> <laughs> And that's was one of, the, one of the earliest things I remember because I thought that that's what we were supposed to be doing, going to have pizza. But, you know, he's practicing. And I thought that there was something that why he kept doing it over because he couldn't get it right. And so I wanted to help him. And after that, that was the day I became, uh, you know, the most interesting person to him ever and start to get lessons and things like that. It was like, you know, your I guess your talent was revealed and now the stage parent has come out. <laughs>
0: And was he playing classical music, and what was his genre of music?
1: Yes, he he plays classical music, and he's a percussionist in the Chicago area. There's only so many orchestras there, but Chicago Symphony being the greatest, and they already had percussionists, but he played in every other... in still to this day, he's playing with every almost community type of orchestra, or semi-professional orchestra in Chicago. And so that's what he does, and he teaches music now.
0: So he must be incredibly proud of everything that you have become. Is, is he slightly uh, surprised that you have overtaken it to such a degree?
1: I think he's now, the relationship we had, as I said, you know, kind of weekendish, because had um, my father that I lived with and my mother, I think he was very surprised in a sense that uh, he never really, even though he does music, and he, but he never achieved the heights that I have. And he always thought that, Music is great, but it's never going to put money on the table, and it's great, and you can study music and then get a nice degree computer programming, even though he was doing it. It was kind of a little bit weird, and throughout what I was studying at a very young age, I actually wound up at some point attending the same school that he attended as like a, they had a whole young artist program that entered prodigies kids that were like even in high school, and so in high school, it was sort of funny because my father had another job, because obviously music wasn't working out the way he planned at the time. He had an, another job, so he would do like a course a year. By the time he was on his way out, I was actually, as a high school student, was going to the same school. And it was really very interesting, um, to say the least, because here I am, and he's the one class a uh, year, or two classes a year person, and inevitably I wound up in a class with my own father. <laughs> that was awkward. <laughs> yeah. Oh
0: my goodness, that's funny.
1: Yeah, so there. So
0: your first talent was as a pianist and you caught the attention of some powerful mentors before you were really even in high school. Tell me how you met the mayor of Chicago, Harold Washington, and then the founder of the Chicago Sinfonietta, Paul Freeman.
1: Well, that was very interesting. Mayor, um, I was performing a lot when I was even early high school and before, and I was on a show... Called Challenge of the Mind with Brian Gumbel, I believe it was. And he was a very well-known, I think he's still alive, uh, well-known commentator on television, on the news. But he hosted a program because they had the NAACP AXO competition. And, uh, and it was for basically all the arts, sciences, and things like that. And they did this documentary, it was called Challenge of the Mind. And I was one of the people who was performing. They followed me. And I was playing list and I, and also they used it for the soundtrack. You know, the opening was me, the middle was me, the end was me. And so I got the attention of the mayor. He took me under his wing and he was very supportive because my family doesn't have a lot of money, but at least he, you know, there's a big interest and I would play it some events for the mayor. And that's how I got like a key, a key to the city. When he was giving them out, he gave me one too. And so basically it was really great when he passed away I cried. Mm. I literally cried because he was really had taken such a great interest in what I was doing. Yeah.
0: And also through him, you met Paul Freeman, who must have been a, a huge mentor for you. Actually,
1: I didn't meet Paul Freeman that way. I met Paul Freeman because Paul Freeman lived in the same building as my father. <laughs> yeah, he lived in the same building as my father. My father moved to, at one point in time, to the downtown river bank. It's uh, one of those buildings that you always see on the thing. But my father moved there. But Paul Freeman lived in the same building. And um, one day down the elevator, Paul Freeman gets on. And my father, in his fit of pride, says, this is my son. You know, he's a pianist. He's going to play for you. And, and that's how I first met him. I never got to play for Paul Freeman. And later on, later, when I lived in Prague, Paul Freeman was the um, conductor for the Prague Symphony Orchestra. When I went to Prague and I studied at the Prague Academy, he was there, and I pulled the biggest remember me of all time sick. <laughs> <laughs> I had just done my, my debut in Prague, and I and he did a concert. I went to go see him at backstage, and I said, "Hey, Maestro Freeman, it's me, Marlon Daniel. Remember me? I knew that when he's like, I remember you." <laughs>
0: So you're basically saying to Paul Freeman, I was the little kid you met in an elevator with my dad. Exactly. (laughs) Do you think he really remembered you or he was just very good at bluffing?
1: I don't know. I think he really did remember me, to be honest with you, because he knew who I was. But maybe because he had read it or was, um, you know, I was the only other black conductor in Prague. And um, in a way, indirectly, I sort of directly followed in his footsteps. I ended up where he was, and uh, it was really quite a powerful m- meeting, and I was really very, very happy, but I didn't know what to say to him, because it's like, you know, you feel like, as a um, conductor of color, like, I'm on, on his turf, and now I'm trying to take over, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I had to have some kind of a go-between or excuse or whatever, like, really, no, 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 uh, you know, I'm 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 going to be over here with this orchestra, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh
0: So you graduated from the Manhattan School of Music and then you left for Prague in the Czech Republic. So I'm curious about why you went to Europe and how or if the experience of being a black musician slash conductor felt different there than it did in the United States.
1: Well, I went to Europe because I had this feeling that basically I noticed That all the conductors, and I didn't know very besides Paul Freeman, which I, you know, that most of them were white and from Europe. I mean, every orchestra, big orchestra that I ever idolized, Chicago Symphony, you know, they all took their conductors from Europe. And I didn't, you know, maybe I was just a little bit naive of thinking that they have these conductors because they're European trained. And I said, well, let me go and get some European training and then see how I fare. And that's why I went to Europe. And so I got European training, came back. And um, yeah, it was the same story. (laughs) I was thinking, you know, it's sort of hard to believe when you're faced with some kind of bias or things like that. And, you you know, you're a logical person, you're educated, you, you tend to doubt it because it doesn't make any sense. And so it didn't make any sense to me. I thought it's the training. They have the best training in Europe and that's what I'm going to get. I'm going to get some of the best training. And so that's why I went to study at the Prague Academy.
0: Was there a seminal moment when you decided that you wanted to focus on conducting over being a pianist? What made you switch?
1: What made me switch? Well, I still play piano. And uh, during this corona quarantine, I've actually been practicing a lot. <laughs> I went to Gilmore Younger Artists. I had scholarships for every school, like, you know, with Manhattan School, and I went to Fontainebleau. I was on that track. i won things, but it just didn't seem like the traction was picking up. You know, no matter how many things I won or what I did, unless I was going to self-promote, I couldn't seem to get a traction. And so I was, for my final exam at Manhattan School of Music, I decided, you know, I'm going to... Play a Mozart concerto from the keyboard. I'm going to do it just like Mozart, and I credit. You know, everybody takes a conducting course. They're you know basic conducting, and I play piano. I'm like two plus two is four. Why can't I do this? I watched a bunch of Daniel Barenboim videos. He did make that set of videos with the Mozart concerto, and I said, wow this is pretty easy. When he stands up, I will stand up. When he sits down, I will sit down. And that's why I learned it. Thank you, Daniel Barrenpoor, because you had a lot of great tips, by (laughs) the way. One day I'm going to meet him and tell him how he was more than my first conducting teacher. (laughs) (laughs) And I decided to do that. But afterwards, I set up a place where we would be playing and I was going to make this big. I'm like, you know, I'm one of those people. I'm I'm all in all the time. And afterwards, I got my friend who's an oboe player and all my strength friends happened to be in the Pinker Zuckerman studio, so they were pretty good. I had everybody, and I was very popular because of, I'm just a very popular person, I think. <laughs> and they all got there, but after we finished the concert, it was a good concert. And they all said, Our hero! And when's the next concert? And I was like, Uh. <laughs> and then this one, I decided if I'm gonna do this, I'm going to really learn how to do this. And I'm going to do it the right way because I knew that there's more to it than what I had done, even though, you know, fake it into you make it scenario was good. But I was just a little bit more curious than that.
0: So it seems that choosing to be a conductor is a bit like choosing to be an NFL quarterback and that there are only a certain number of positions available, even fewer yes. than there are NFL quarterbacks if you narrow it down just to top flight symphonies and philharmonic orchestras. So... It seems like you chose an avenue that was really hard over being a pianist, where it seems like there'd be more opportunity.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Have you ever...
1: From the frying pan into the fire.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that isn't a decision you've ever regretted. You feel like conducting is what is in your soul.
1: I've never regretted it because I obviously had more jobs coming in from conducting, and also they paid more as an average. So it was um, very interesting, you know, when I first went to Prague, the funny thing is that I was at a very big spot in my life where I was just about to give up. I was at that point, I had um, became a New York real estate broker. And I decided if I wasn't going to be happy, I was going to be rich. That was my goal. And I said, and I can buy a little happiness as I go along because I'll have money. And who knew I was a real estate genius? I mean, a real real estate genius. I'm like, Beethoven's heart. Real estate is easy. But the funny thing is with real estate, they always say that you have to make your own schedule. As long as, If you want to make money in real estate, as long as 24 hours is part of that schedule, you can make a lot of money. And for a brief period, I made money hand over fist. And I sometime between that time, I had sent my application off for an uh, international conducting competition in the Czech Republic. I had forgotten all about it, but lo and behold, you know, it came to a point where I had reached my apex of frustration with the real estate business and was so just angry with myself because you, I couldn't practice. I couldn't do anything. You know, I taught students on piano on the weekends and I did my real estate in the week and people would call you up until like one, 2 AM about real estate deals. And it was just overwhelming and I wasn't getting anything done for myself. And I just, I had this come to God moment and uh, where uh, some people will call it a breakdown. (laughs) And I was just angry. And I just said, you know, God, if you want me to be a musician, send me a sign. And I mean a sign right now. And I was just so mad and angry. and, And on Friday, I think it was a Wednesday, I had this breakdown. And on Friday, I got an invitation to come to the international conducting competition. And I just said, I said, yes. I told everybody I was taking a break. I'll be back. And that's what I did. I prepared and went to the competition. And I won like third prize. But the funny thing about it is that one of the judges, Miriam Silva, saw me there. She told me she, and she, I am probably she judged, she didn't judge all the rounds. She judged up to right before the finals, which I obviously made it to. And she pulled me aside because it was her orchestra, the Praga Sinfonia, which was my first job. She says, Marlon, you're not going to win this competition. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm doing so well. She she took me aside. She's like, I like you. And she says, and the orchestra loves you, but you're not going to win. And she told me why. Basically, I came in with one check piece <laughs> and I was not a real, real conductor at this time. I had like One Beethoven symphony, one of this. And boy, (laughs) did I do those well. But she's like, but you didn't do, you know, you did the basic minimum with check requirements. And she's like, I know this competition. They want you to do more check works. So I didn't know any check works. And so what I did was, you know, she said, I have an opening. She says, next year, I'm going to hire an assistant. And she says, basically, it was like, you know, the matrix, red pill, blue pill. She's like. (laughs) I'm going to Prague now. And we were not in Prague. We were in Kromagisha, I think, or something. Or it was Lynn. I don't know where it was in Czech Republic. But she says, I'm going back. You know, come with me. I'll sign you up for the Prague Conservatory, which I'm the head of. And that's how we'll get you in the country as a student. And you'll become my assistant at the Prague Sinfoniera. She's like, you know, and after that, she's like, well, you can even be an associate because we'll, we'll give you a few concerts and things like that. So that's a qualification. That's a little bit difference. Citizens don't necessarily get concerts. Associates get concerts. So, you know, we worked out a deal and I just filled out all the paperwork. I called my job. I was like, I quit. I came back on the train to the competition and uh, fairly easy and played, performed in the finals and uh, won a prize. And that was, that was it.
0: So how long did you live in Prague for?
1: Three and a half years. I started out at the conservatory with her, and I was also her assistant at the uh, Prague Conservatory. So I have a diploma from there, too. But the second year I was there, a uh, opening opened up in the uh, Prague Academy. And I went to the Prague Academy to study with Juri Beralovic, And so that's what happened. I was like, there was one spot, and it was kind of a shoe-in. And so I took it. And, uh, you know, with their foreign program, and I got a postgraduate from the Prague Academy, Hamel. And that's how I wound up there.
0: What era are we in now? Are we in the 90s or the 2000s?
1: Early 2000s, I believe. And that's how I did there. I mean, later on, I went to Finland. But that was later. I was like working and doing things after that, after I I left Prague after three and a half years. I didn't stay. I loved Prague, but I didn't stay because I didn't want to be paid in Czech crowns. (laughs) It wasn't enough money unless you had a really good position. And being mine was just sort of a glorified assistance as far as money, and it couldn't sustain me and you know I had bills in America, and I could only live off of this money, and my money from the from the real estate business had run out.
0: Your riches had run out.
1: My riches had run out. <laughs> I had just enough you know to make that big move, and besides I had to I was flying backwards and forward from New York to Prague because I had stuff to take care of. You know, it was like a rash decision when I was like, yes, I'll do it. But then all these things came like, got to get rid of this, got to have that, got to change your apartment, got to do, you know, I had some students, I had like about 10 students and I I didn't want to be one of those teachers. Goodbye, have a nice life. You know what I mean? Because, you know, when you have a, a teacher and they have a new job, they just leave. And I was very committed to the students that I did have, piano students. So I relocated them. So I was back in New York a lot probably more than I should. And so that was a real thing. And I was trying to be responsible. Also, I'm a very responsive person. I try to be.
0: So then you went up to Finland and I went to Helsinki?
1: Well, Finland didn't happen for a while. After that, I was working and doing jobs as a conductor. I was uh, working the orchestra that I had founded in New York, Ensemble du Monde. And I was working and, you know, it was a struggle, but I was working and I was doing things. And I was getting some jobs coming in. So it was okay. But I began to notice a trend in conducting. A lot of people that I really loved conducting as conductors. And I noticed that, you know, they all were from Finland. I mean, Essek Pekka Salonen, awesome Vanska, all these people. And I'm like, I like the way they conduct. I like what they're doing. And I want to enhance what I'm doing now. So how do I do this? How do I approach it? I found out from research that all of them studied with the maker of maestros, Yorba Panola. And I sought him out. I found a master class where he was there, and I found him, and I applied for the class. I got in the class, and I conducted for him, and he was everything that I thought. He really, at a time where I was hitting a ceiling about my abilities, and I wanted to really do something different or take my in a different direction. I wanted to conduct the way I wanted to conduct. And I thought I didn't have enough information on that. And he was really, he changed my life. I had a lot of things that I knew and he kind of brought everything together. And uh, it, it's incredible. He teaches everyone slightly differently. And it was very funny. The funniest thing about Maestro Panella is that I had, his wife also took a liking to me. She loves me. I'm like a I'm like a member of the family, you know, <laughs> people are amazed. They see photos sometimes on Facebook with me and I'm in the rocking chair and he's in the other rocking chair and we're just hanging out like, really? He's my, he's like a mentor in my, he's kind of like my grandfather to me these days. And, um, he sat me down and he says, you know, besides that, he's like, you know, I like you. And he asked me, he said, have you ever heard of Dean Dixon? He said this to me, and I was like, well, Maestro, of course I have. He's like an idol of mine. He's like the, the first, he's, you know, black conductor that was really something in America. He's a living legend. And the Yorma told me, he said, that was my teacher. It blew my mind because, you know, this world that we live in of conducting conductors, and there's just proportionately who are conductors, they're usually white guys from Europe, whatever. But for him to say that, to me, it brought it, one of the things that brought it home for me, because it's like, wow, had Dean Dixon been able to be appreciated in the United States as he was in Europe, and uh, especially Northern Europe and Sweden and Finland and all those things, we would have had a conducting school the legacy is from Dean Dixon in that sense. I feel very connected to Dean Dixon through Yorma, but Dean Dixon would probably would have been a conducting teacher at Juilliard, teaching everybody for the whole generation, and the demographic probably would have been terribly different. So it's kind of hit home to me just these little things, you know, when people think of like racism and things like that and diversity in classical music, it's a little bit more subtle than what you even think and and that mean a lot to me because here he was passing me a torch that i didn't even know existed
0: well and that that kind of gets goes back to the question i was asking about being in prague and whether you were received differently within the European classical music world than here, whether you found the same race issues in Europe as you have had found in America. You know, you think about people like Josephine Baker. I mean, she was huge in Paris. It, it wasn't an issue that she was an African-American. She was exotic and talented and fabulous. And I wonder whether you had you got to have some of that too, to be exotic and fabulous and talented when you were in Europe. And and that wasn't appreciated in the same way back in the United States.
1: Yeah, I never had a problem in Prague. I love Prague. If I was offered a job in Prague, I would be there. I love it. They treated me and everyone I encountered treated me really wonderful. But I think that, you know, it didn't really have anything to do with that. Uh, You know, for my first Opportunity with Miriam Nimsova, she liked the way I conducted. She liked me, and I think though in general that when I did get other jobs, they always were a little bit curious at what I would do. But then after that, they're not so curious. It's either you're good or you're not.
0: Right.
1: And then that's when they engage you. One time is great for exotic, but two times is like they like you. You know, it might open the door a little bit because they oh let's try them out. You know, let's see what they're doing over there. You know. But after that, it's really about your abilities.
0: So you've been described as exceptional and dynamic. And I'm curious about what makes one conductor different from another. I mean, you're all following the same school. What differentiates one conductor from another? And what makes you especially dynamic?
1: Well, first of all, I don't think we're all following the same school. That's why when I went to Yorba Panola, I wanted to change what I was doing to more about what somehow pushing myself over into the way that he does it. Yorma Panella probably if he saw well, I already know his ideas on Leonard Bernstein and things like that, but Leonard Bernstein as a student, he probably would pull his hair out. You know what I mean? It was just so so different. Yorma is about more like precision and things like that and I was younger, I was a dancer, I did some dancing, boys up ballet in Chicago, active childhood in this sense in the arts. But one of the things that he told me, you're a conductor, not a dancer. And then he wanted me to be very still. I mean, if you ever watch Esapekka Salonen, it's very calculated. The movements that he makes are all very conservative. And I wanted this conservative approach in myself. And so, you know, you see a lot of people, they're very flamboyant in the movements and things like that. And that's where I was coming from, even naturally. And uh, Prague helped it a bit, you know, organized it. But, you know, it's more like being a very uh, music surgeon with luck. He's making sure that everything's in the right place. Everything's very economical. And I like that very much. So everybody's not the same all the time with expression. But I wanted to be more in control of myself and the orchestra. And that's why I went in that direction.
0: What difference does it make to me as an audience member in terms of how I'm hearing the sound, whether you're flamboyant or surgically still, the players are still playing, how am I receiving it differently?
1: Well, it's all an emotion. If your emotions are very big, it tends to give people, especially the orchestra, a bigger or more broader type of sense of sweep in that sense, which is great. But if you didn't want that, but if that's your only trick that you have, you know, it all becomes a little bit blurred for me. I wanted things to be very linear in that sense, or learn how to make it very linear so that I can control more of the textures, Just not to throw it out there in a way, but I wanted to make it more slender in that approach. And that's what I was looking for, to make things more clear. And I think for a listener, when they have this clarity, they, they tend to say, oh my God, I've never noticed that the oboe was playing there... the the solo so beautifully there, or things that you bring out, I wanted to make sure that everyone viewed my tapestry that I was weaving in a very clear and concise way.
0: Well, let's take a little musical break and listen to you conducting the Sofia Sinfonietta, performing Stravinsky's Firebird Suite from his 1919 arrangement. And this is from the first tableau, and it is The Dance of the Firebird. was my guest today Maestro Marlon Daniel conducting the Sofia Sinfonietta's performance of Dance of the Firebird from Stravinsky's Firebird Suite. So here's maybe a slightly irreverent question for you but what does an orchestra sound like without a conductor?
1: Well, depends on what the makeup of the players are. To be honest with you, I did some time with Simon Rader in the Berlin Philharmonic. I had a fellowship to go there and what I learned that the Berlin Philharmonic is fabulous. the best orchestra in the world. They can play the most complex pieces without any conductor whatsoever. I mean, I realized that because at one point, Sir Simon actually said, could you guys just play? I want to just listen to that. And they were fine. (laughs) You know what I mean? And they they were absolutely fine. But it depends on the level of the orchestra and how well they listen to each other. Um, The conductor is a focal point that can clear all ambiguities up. They can also control. They can hear the sound. They're shaping the sound in a way so that people enjoy the music in an even a greater way. Say, for instance, that the the basses are too loud. The thing I'm hearing is bass. I cannot hear any soprano sound, like in the violins and things like that. It's your job as a conductor to bring them down so that and bring out the other voices. And also timing. I remember my first. Conducting experience in my last uh, year of Manhattan School of Music, I was performing Mozart's Beef, Black, and Gero, the last one. And um, my roommate, or maybe I shouldn't mention that, because she knows who she is. <laughs> 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 She's quite good. But she was really fabulous, oboist. Somewhere between one of the movies, it's very similar. It was like the first and the last. Very similar, and the oboe has an entrance. Okay, she was going to be coming in like four to eight bars because it sounded exactly the same. I saw her licking her lips. I saw her getting all ready for it, and she, but she had miscounted. She had uh, miscounted, and she was going by what she had heard, which was very similar. And she put the oboe on her mouth, and I'm playing the piano. And that was like, now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> But somewhere after she played like almost one bar, I had the free left hand. I stuck it up as a stop. <laughs> and she, she saw my hand, and I'm still playing with the right hand. And she realized that. And then she stopped. And then I kept playing until the part where she actually came in. And then I brought her in. Basically, she would have been off eight bars. She would have continued for the entirety <laughs> of the piece if I wouldn't have done that. And that's the same. It's like a game of telephone or whatever, you know, when you get there, you know, it's a totally different message. Or if you're counting, I'm counting starting from one from 100 and I start counting and we go around the block and we come back, we'll have two different numbers. A conductor is the point of reference for everyone. And that's just the basic when people come in, keeping them together, especially for contemporary pieces that might sound and be different from what they expect
0: well, let's, let's talk a little bit about diversity. You spent your career calling for diversity in the classical music world and, and it seems like those demands are getting increased attention and hopefully some traction. There's a lot of chat right now across the media and within organizations. And the obstacles are pretty immense because Classical music just has this kind of white Eurocentrism profoundly embedded within it. And less than 4% of musicians in classical orchestras in the United States are Black. So where does change need to start?
1: Well, I think, you know, first of all, educating people, even Black people, that classical music is definitely for everyone. One of the major things, even from... Black people so why are you doing that white folks' music? I grew up with that, this phrase in my head. And, um, well, one reason I've been doing it, because I found it truth. Basically, I could play something on the piano, and it was exactly like I heard it on recording. I didn't need a studio. I didn't need anything. I could make the real sound exactly the way I, it's written. And so, for me, it was a truth to classical music that I loved. But afterwards, I learned that this is all a lie. Black people have been part of classical music for a very, very long time. And when I discovered Chevalier de Saint George, it opened a world to me like I've been lied to all this time because here's a person and, you know, people like you're playing that Mozart and all the things and, you know, everything you could say. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I found somebody who influenced Mozart and wait a minute, he's black. So you, what I've been told is totally different. And then I started to investigate it more and more people and more composers throughout history who have done classical music who were actually of African descent. Right. And so I was feeling like I've been lied to and things have been whitewashed. And so not that I'm going to do anything about it. I'm not such a militant person. like, I'm going to do something about it. But what I did as a conductor is I began to program pieces by black composers. You know, if I'm going to do the new work, or one work on each of my program would be by a composer of color or a woman composer or anybody who was different instead of the same old music that they're always hearing. And St. George played a big part of it because I had a lots of friends who were violinists. And basically they would play these same five Mozart concertos And San George wrote like fourteen that we know of, fourteen concertos, and they all some of them even sound they're competitive, let's put it that way, with the Mozart concertos. Uh, some of them are great works. And I'm thinking, why you know, why don't they play this? And so I would say, you know, I'm doing this San George concerto, do you want to play it? And they would play it. I'm like, wow, this is pretty good. And I that made me think, is classical music being whitewashed? And what can I do about it? And I'm not a person to complain. but It's more it's like, I always want to make things better. What can I do to make it better? And so that's what I did. And I started doing St. George pieces. I started doing pieces by living black composers. That's I'm like on the speed dial for most black composers these days. They're sending me their work, sometimes just to peruse, just in case. And I thought nothing of it. But no one else was performing this music. And so... I figured, why not? It made my programs interesting and I'm doing something to highlight people just like me. And it, it's, it's very fulfilling, you know.
0: Well, that brings us to the incredible Joseph Bologne Chevalier de Saint-Georges, such a great name, who was born on the Caribbean island of Guadeloupe in 1745, the son of an incredibly beautiful black plantation worker and, oh, kel surprise, the white and married plantation owner. But his life has to be one of the most fascinating in the classical world. So give us a potted history of the amazing Saint-Georges.
1: Well, that was, that was a turning point in my life as far as music of composers of color. I could, first of all, I disbelieved it. <laughs> a friend of mine, yes, I thought it was somebody was well, just pulling my leg. A friend of mine who happened to be from Guadeloupe. I met a friend from Guadeloupe through another friend. I didn't even know where Guadeloupe was, to be honest <laughs> with you. And he says, and we're known for this and that. And, you know, you're talking and we have a composer, Joseph Ballon, Chevalier de saint George, who influenced Mozart. And I'm like, really? Why haven't I ever heard of this? And, you know, I'm, and it's not like I'm going to doubt another person of color, you know, on an issue of color. But I'm like thinking I've been through like almost four years of music school and music history. And I am, you know, I've ravaged the libraries and I have never heard of this guy. And so I began to, and I found out that, of course, he wasn't lying, you know. And so, one of my best friends, by the way. And not only was he not lying, but he's, he only knew half of the story. And and then I began to go in this plight and said, oh, my God. And I found out about his history. And this guy was a Superman. I could not believe this. For me, it was the answer to all my questions, like what I've been seeking all my life, the validation that what I'm doing is somehow real and... It blew my mind. I mean, the things that I found out, and it was very little information, I began to gather more and more information on Chevalier de Saint George, which eventually led to Festival International of Music Saint George or the Saint George International Music Festival. It led to that. And there was a guy there who was trying to form a festival or music for Saint George, and he could not get it together. He was missing a link, and basically, I was the missing link. The link missing link was that he needed somebody who knew music. <laughs> he wasn't a musician, and also who also besides knowing music actually was very good at a network of musicians. And so basically, I was all, all their efforts that were for. I think the guy was trying to plan this for years and years, but never could get it because the level <laughs> of musicians in Guadalupe and was just not what could sustain this music. So in 2011, I went there to experiment. You know, with my friend's help. To see if, you know, if it could be done. This, you know, from all my research, it's like, wow, this is the land of St. George. This is where he was born. This might be interesting. And, you know, you're looking for career opportunities. You're looking for ways to individualize yourself. So what I went there and I brought a team with me and I was the missing link that made it happen. It was like a sensation in Guadeloupe but after that it didn't happen because of political things for many years and also i found out to run a festival it was a lot of work
0: yeah it's huge
1: it's huge even for a, you know a one off you know and then i found that lots of people including the people who had actually bought me there the, the one person there was one woman from france and the guy from guadeloupe They weren't prepared to do all this work. They were prepared to go to the concerts, yes. (laughs) But they weren't prepared to do all this work. And then there was an enormous amount of work of rehearsing and things like that. And and not until 2016, I actually started my own association in France. started that with help from people who I had gathered to me who were real workers. And that's where it just, you know, sprang up. It just caught immediately. We had the resources. We had a little bit of manpower, even a small manpower And that's where the festival is today. It's like, wow, a few short years.
0: And going back to Saint-Georges, I mean, his biological father and his wife and this black plantation worker, he moved them all to France. So this is the mid-1700s. And he's... An aristocrat. So he introduces Saint Georges to the court. He goes to the best schools. He becomes an incredible swordsman. John Adams calls him the most accomplished man in Europe. He hangs out with Marie Antoinette. He kind of gets a bit caught up in the French Revolution. Um, He starts the first black regiment. He writes operas. He writes music. Mozart, as you said, Mozart comes to Paris. Mozart meets Chevalier, who is his senior and is, is incredibly influenced by him. And it's, it is so unfair that Chevalier de Saint-Georges is called the Black Mozart, when really Mozart is the white Chevalier. And because of the timing, because he's a, a black man in Paris and it's the French Revolution and lots of things are going on and Mozart becomes famous, Saint-Georges kind of devastatingly ends up being overlooked by history.
1: Well, there, there's a lot of information and what you just said and i think there's a lot of reasons well first of all his father takes him to paris i think the father he really loved his son i think this is one of those cases where his love for his son transcended the norm of the day and he used a lot of his funding to make sure because also he was a commoner he wasn't royalty, you know, but at those times you could buy into being an aristocrat. But he wanted to make sure that his son had all the opportunities by putting him in the in, you know, Labossier's school. And so he made sure of that. And that also ensured, like, his family, the name of the family and the legacy of his family. You know, it was a little bit personal in that sense. So that was one of those issues. Mozart, in turn, as you, as you said... I'm not sure if, uh, you know, it's not documented them actually meeting, but he was certainly influenced on many, many fronts by Chevalier de Saint-Georges. And that's one of my phrases that I always use, that, you know, Mozart should have been the, the white Chevalier de Saint-Georges.
0: Right.
1: And that, that's true, but it's a little bit more complicated, I think, and the French Revolution didn't help. Chevalier de Saint-Georges, I mean, he was, he was free all the time in Paris, you know, with the whole Napoleon aspect of it, you know, first slavery was on, then slavery was off, and then he tried to bring it back on. And that was devastating times, Age of Enlightenment. Marie Antoinette, you know, when Mozart came there, Saint-Georges was incredibly popular, not only because of the music, which was very innovative in the time he did symphony and concertantes, which we know Mozart wrote two of those, and Saint-Georges, I think he like wrote eight of them that we know of, because he wrote a lot of music, because he was very active. This idea of the Symphonie concerto as a double concerto, saint George had already done, and he was a dominant composer of that day. It's impossible that Mozart didn't hear this. Impossible when he had eight of them being produced all the time that he was there. And also the quartet style, you can tell the style is very, very similar. And even with his violin concertos, he Mozart opted for the French Rondo, which was something that. Chevalier de saint George. that was out there, 14 concertos. It's it's just like, really, it's like saying, okay, I went to a certain spot where they were doing a certain thing, but I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> Nothing. But I don't think that that was Mozart's intention. I think that's history's intention. And sort of the, you know, if you want to say it, the, the whitewashing of musicians of color. But that came a little bit afterwards. Napoleon, pretty much everyone says, oh, well, he just banned all of his music. You know, Napoleon was banning everything that wasn't agreeing with Napoleon. So, <laughs> you know, that's how dictatorship work, <laughs> <Do> you know? <laughs> so I don't think that uh, Napoleon said, everybody woke up every day and said, I'm going to get that St. George. But at one point in time, which we all know that Napoleon was actually thought of as a savior to France and a savior to the world. I mean, Beethoven wrote his eroica Symphony, and it was originally called the Napoleon. But then when Napoleon and his, uh, let's put it, his wife decided that she didn't want to work anymore, (laughs) they wanted to reinstate slavery and all those things, and people just weren't having it. But all the things were going on, lots of things. Paris was the city of light. Marie Antoinette, she had a turn in events, you know what I mean? And St. George, because he was an aristocrat also, he could have easily been beheaded too. Because they were cleaning house, you know, but he was the one who was fighting for the common man. The rights of the people who couldn't defend themselves and so that i think that's what saved him a bit too and i think a lot of his music also was lost besides napoleon let's get rid of that music that uh doesn't appear you know is not part of my regimen but also they were destroying everything in paris of people who were aristocrats and since that part of him was an aristocrat and um Paris was literally burning up until when the French Revolution, they were burning everything, everybody, off with your heads. So it's not surprising that a lot of his music was lost And uh, because of uh, Napoleon, because of the French Revolution, because of the turmoil in France, everything that was going on. But saint George still comes out on the right side of things throughout it. And uh, it's so surprising that, for me, that his music wasn't... Well, I guess it was preserved as much as possible...
0: What's your favorite piece of Chevalier de Saint-Georges to conduct?
1: Ah, uh, probably one of the violin concertos. Probably the violin concerto opus 4. It's just a great piece. But then again, I always like the violin concerto in Opus 2 number 2 in D major. <laughs> it's a lot of pieces and I haven't I haven't done them all. Whenever I uh, they uh, and then uh, right now I'm on to the, uh, the Anonymous Lover because it has some just extraordinary The whole thing is not as wonderful as I would like it to be. But there's some movements, some arias there that are just wonderful. So I keep learning new things. That's the great thing about Saint George. I keep learning new things about him. And um, whenever I find a new piece, I make my own edition. So I've been through the manuscripts. So when people are looking for Saint George now, they usually call me. And I'm like, "Eh, I just did that. Or I have that. You know, I'm, I'm slowly but surely getting through the whole Repertoire of Saint George so that it's available to the general public.
0: Well, of course, we have to listen to some of Chevalier de Saint George's fabulous music. And as you have a fondness for his Symphony Number no. 2 in D major, here is a live performance of you conducting the Dimena Center for Classical Music in New York City as the orchestra plays Saint George's Overture to the Anonymous Lover, the first movement of his Opus 2, Number no. 2. Mm-hmm. Was Maestro Marlon Daniel conducting Chevalier Saint-Georges' Overture to the Anonymous Lover from his symphony number no. two in D major, opus two, number no. two. I hear they are going to make a film about Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Are they? I believe so. I, um, it's Maybe it's just in the planning stage. There was a director listed as a potential person involved with making a film and they need you.
1: <laughs> they need me. <laughs> I hope if they do finally make the, a film, because I've gotten a lot of scripts from people and people who are writing dissertations and books, and they always come to me to ask for advice or check this out. What do you think? And I mean, if something was to come about like this, it would be my dream come true. It's been long in the making. I saw a really good play about it. And I thought, yeah, that could be a good movie. And that brings it into my fantasy realm, you know. Besides, you know, I'd love to be a consultant on a movie like this. And uh, for sure, the soundtrack. Oh, wow. Me on a soundtrack of the music of Sanchez, that would be like all of this work has somehow come to an apex, you know?
0: <laughs> so the next festival is April next year. Yes. On Guadeloupe. And at some point, tickets will be available and we can all fly to Guadeloupe. <laughs>
1: Well, you are certainly welcome to come to Guadeloupe, of course. Um, yeah, we're finishing up all of the things by, I think, by mid-September, let's say October. You have privy to a little bit of secret information, so we're not going to spill the beans yet, because also things are a little bit in flux, but by October, everything will be out on our new website, which is Festival St. George, and that should be up in a couple of weeks. We're diligently working on that, but the programming will be up probably in October, but it is an exciting, exciting season. Every time we get better, I always try to top myself, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm like, I have some outstanding people coming and uh, I could tell you a little bit.
0: Go and give us a sneak peek.
1: I'll give you a little sneak peek, but... Uh, it's only me. We're in conversations. I'm telling the world, by, by the way, because I <laughs> you get around. We're going to have really acclaimed baritone Stephen Salters coming. And he is the winner. I think he's the only African-American who's won the Queen Elizabeth competition in Brussels. And he's going to come. He's uh, pledged that he's coming with me. Every year we have Janae Bridges, which she's a wonderful superstar. She's one of my friends. When I said, I'm going to do this, she says, I'm with you. Came, jumped on a plane from wherever she was. I think she was in Denmark and came to (laughs) Guadeloupe. So I'm looking forward. To having her,
0: Well, Marlon, we are almost out of time, but I do have one more question for you before we close. Is it true that you were on Sesame Street as a child?
1: Yes, I was. <laughs> I was somewhere in grammar school. I was being sought after as a child actor. Yep. And I did Sesame Street. I did. Uh, and I don't know what they do with those tapes or anything. It aired. It was a very short scene with Cookie Monster. <laughs> and that was it. And I never, and uh, my mother didn't really want me to become a child actor type of thing, because that was bad, you know, in these days.
0: What a great memory, though.
1: But I do remember having a, having a scene with Cookie Monster, and I do remember it being aired at some, at least I think it was aired, and that was all. It wasn't a big deal, you know, I wasn't on multiple episodes or anything like that, and... Uh, So
0: That's That's fabulous. I've never met anybody that's been on Sesame Street. So there we go. I'm now one, just one stage removed from Cookie Monster.
1: (laughs) Yeah, one degree (laughs) of separation from Cookie Monster.
0: Well, Marlon Daniel, maestro Marlon Daniel, it has been such a delight to have you on the show. And uh, I thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your time and for all the work that you're doing to make Chevalier de Saint-Georges part of contemporary classical history.
1: Thank you for having me. And yeah, thank your listeners for listening to me.
0: (laughs) And that is it for another week. I am rather hoping that we can collectively persuade somebody like, ooh, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra to invite Maestro Marlon Daniel to Columbia for a program of the music of Chevalier de Saint-Georges. If you're interested in finding out more about the Saint George International Music Festival, check out the website Guadeloupe island.com forward slash culture. The 2021 festival runs from April the 10th to the 17th, and flight time from Miami is around three hours. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today for such a fun hour and to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song Restless Heart at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music and several of Chevalier de Saint-Georges' concertos on Spotify. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia!